Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today are political editor Pat Lee. Pat, how are you bearing up under the strains of government non-formation these days? Manfully, Hugh. Manfully. Well, you'll be glad to hear, I think, and everyone else will be glad to hear too, that we are saying goodbye to that particular subject for today because we are going to return to the subject which dominated the political agenda for pretty much the whole of last year. It didn't feature at all, really, in the general election campaign, but it has not gone away, you know. Although there is a semantic question about whether or not we can still call it Brexit because Britain has now legally exited the European Union. However, this week saw the first steps in the next stage of this process, agreeing the future relationship between the two once the period of transition ends at the end of this year. Uh, This all feels a bit like the return of a new series of a long-running TV drama, so I'm just going to give a very brief story so far for you, just in case anyone has forgotten what actually happened over the last while. So the the turmoil and deadlock in British politics, which ultimately led to the replacement of Theresa May by Boris Johnson last summer, and the the ensuing stalemate with Parliament in the autumn, was ultimately broken when Johnson and Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, uh, agreed a new arrangement. Uh, This arrangement would prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland while permitting the UK mainland to leave the single market and the customs union entirely. This in turn led to an amendment to the agreement covering the terms of the UK's withdrawal, although most of the other elements in that withdrawal covering issues such as reciprocal citizens' rights and the UK's financial obligations remain the same. We should also mention that the political declaration, which is a a non-binding agreement setting out a roadmap for the future relationship between the UK and the EU, was also pretty much unaltered. And as we all know, Boris Johnson then went on to call an election in the UK, which he won in December with a more than comfortable majority of 80 seats. And Parliament then went on to pass the withdrawal agreement, all of which meant that the UK ceased to be part of the European Union on Friday, the 31st of December at 11pm with neither a bang nor a bong from Big Ben. So now, in just three days' time on Monday, March the 1st, negotiations will officially begin on the future relationship. And this week we saw first the EU and then the UK set out their starting positions. To discuss those positions and what they might mean, we are joined on the line by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Hi, Dennis. Hi. And I am delighted to welcome our new new European editor, Naomi O'Leary. Hi, Naomi. Hi. Great to be with you. Naomi, you have joined the Irish Times from Politico Europe, but you're also no stranger to podcasts with your own excellent and, if I may so say, really very successful Irish Passport podcast. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Um, Our listeners may want to know, is it going to continue? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the plan. So um, it will be a bit of a balancing act, but uh, yeah, definitely. We're we're currently, uh, we've got a load of reporting already done for our next season and we'll hope to launch that in a few weeks. Well, we don't want to see it competing uh, with any advantage to our podcast. But anyway, we wish you you well with that. Maybe, Naomi, you might just run through the EU negotiating mandate that was published this week and tell us what you think the the important bits of it are. Sure. So what happened this week was the um, ambassadors from the EU, remaining EU member states, met to hash out the final version of the mandate that they're going to give to the chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, and his team. 
Um, and there were a couple of tweaks uh, to the final version, which it, there might be worth paying attention to. Uh, one addition that Ireland managed to get in is a reference to Ireland's unique geographical position. And my understanding of the significance of that is that attention should be duly paid to the fact that in order for goods to get to and from Ireland in general, they have to be brought on trucks through Britain. Um, and so whatever ultimate deal there is, there should be some sort of an allowance for that fact. Um, and the concrete details of what that means is, is something that will have to be established in the negotiations. The other thing that also was agreed that um, was, I suppose, had been the sticking point in agreeing the um, the final mandate was the so-called level playing field um, issue. So what level playing field essentially refers to is agreeing a common enough set of standards and rules so that the UK doesn't undercut the single market. So the EU's position is basically that they can have a nice, um, friendly trade deal, very close trade relations, but only if they're not going to be undercutting the single market with things like state aid. So I don't know, for example, you can give a company really or a sector really cheap electricity uh, that gives it a competitive advantage over um, over neighbouring countries. Uh, or you could have lower standards, lower labour laws, uh, lower environmental rights. So the French had been pushing for dynamic alignment, as it was called, which was, would basically mean that the UK would have to update its standards over time to continue to be in line with the EU. Um, they didn't quite get that. There was a compromise reach, reached, um, which says that there will be an agreement with, with EU standards as a reference point. Um, and so that means that from the EU's point of view, if the outcome is the same, it doesn't mean that the UK is literally going to have to be adopting EU regulations um, as long as the, the, the outcome is ultimately comparable. And I suppose one of the questions with that, Naomi, is, you know, with the level playing field, who's the groundsman, who owns the roller and the um, and the lawnmower? Um, and the question yeah. of who adjudicates <laughs> disputes, which will ev- inevitably arise in the future over whether the level playing field is still level. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the major sticking points. Um, the Who is going to uh, be the adjudicator of, of this? And also... Um, What's interesting over this week is that, um, from my point of view, both sides have sort of set out kind of hard lines in this position in that the EU has locked in the implementation of prior agreements into the actual wording of their mandate for the achievement of the next deal. So they basically have said that we're going to need to see implementation of the prior withdrawal agreement. And that, by the way, means checks in the Irish Sea and preparations towards those checks, like literally infrastructure and stuff. Um, or, you know, the whole deal is in question. That's in paragraph five of the um, negotiating mandate. And and there is, I suppose, that's getting to the part of things where there is significant concerns in Dublin and where Dublin becomes involved. And I was wondering, Naomi, if there is an appreciation in Brussels of just kind of how a kind of sense of the political situation is here at the moment with the performance of Sinn Féin in the general election, the kind of uncertain, the uncertainty about the what constitute, who is going to constitute the future government here uh, uh, in, 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 in terms of looking at those issues. Yeah, um, to be honest, that 
hasn't been much talked about from what I've seen in Brussels and from the conversations that I've been having. I think that the um, EU states are, are used to the fact that there's a very busy, busy electoral calendar. You know, when you've got 27 different states, there's almost always someone that's having an election or having some sort of an issue going on. So they tend to kind of um, trust the representatives that turn up on the day. Um, so we had Simon Coveney and Helen McEntee, um, the foreign minister and European affairs minister, um, coming to Brussels to sign off on this mandate and presenting, you know, sort of a, a an image of continuity. You know, there's there is a government. They're they're the same faces that there were before. There's not too much concern. Um, I was wondering whether how much more patience could there be with this Irish issue, given the extent to which it dominated the last stage of of negotiations. Uh, but my understanding is that essentially the last couple of years have been like a crash course in Ireland and its history uh, for the rest of the EU. And it's become a massive point of principle to uh, demonstrate absolute solidarity with Ireland. And that wavering on any of these details is sort of emblematic of the wider approach of the British. So from what I can see, um, yeah, there there remains very strong solidarity with Ireland, to be honest. If I could just bring Dennis in here, as I said at the outset, Dennis, uh, the, the kind of the negotiations which are just about to begin are really under the terms very broadly of the political declaration, which was non-binding and it wasn't the main bone of contention for that very reason uh, with all the political shenanigans last year. But the withdrawal agreement itself of which the Northern Ireland Protocol was the most contentious and difficult part. Should there be any resiling from the withdrawal agreement? What what happens? What, what, what do people in, in the UK think might happen? Or is there, as those kind of uncertainties which were expressed this week, even the, the slight vagueness in the way that Michael Gove addressed the issue in the Commons this week, I mean, does that, does that imply that that's seen as being back on the table in some way as well? Kind of. People in Downing Street make a a very clear distinction between the withdrawal agreement, including the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is an international treaty and which is also written into British law in the Withdrawal Agreement Bill or Withdrawal Agreement Act as it is now. So they say that's, um, you know, absolutely sacrosanct. We have obligations under that and we're going to fulfil all the obligations. The political declaration is, uh, you know, has, you know, it's an important document, but it doesn't have the same status and it's, you know, open to different kinds of interpretation. And they say also, you know, the Europeans actually haven't stuck to the letter of the political declaration in their mandate either. Where the protocol is concerned, what we're talking about really is the interpretation of how to implement it. What the Northern Ireland Protocol said was that Northern Ireland would be treated as part of the EU customs union and really as part of its uh, regulatory orbit, but it would also be part of the uh, UK's customs territory and that Uh, Essentially, there would be certain processes and procedures needed to make sure that there was some check on goods that were travelling from Great Britain into Northern Ireland that might be going on to uh, Southern Ireland and therefore into the European Union. And uh, what Boris Johnson has been repeatedly saying, and Michael Gove said it again yesterday, is there'll be no border in the Irish Sea. And he also says there'll be no checks on goods crossing the Irish Sea. And this, of course, drives everybody in Ireland and in Brussels crazy. And but and so they were all wondering, what does he actually mean? And I think there are a couple of things he means. One is that it's partly semantic. You know, what is a border? And he's basically saying these procedures. And so if you talk again to uh, people in Whitehall, they'll say these are not checks. There obviously there'll be processes and procedures uh, like there already are. And there is 
you know, when there are certain, uh, you know, animal health issues, uh, you know, that there are kinds of procedures that people have to go through, but they're not really checks, and that's not a border, and this is not going to be a border in the Irish Sea. So that's one thing that they're trying to uh, reassure people in Northern Ireland and just generally say that's not it. The other thing that I think that they're trying to do is that they want to kind of uh, introduce an element of uncertainty into the uh, the whole game. And so what uh, they've found themselves in a position where they don't have all that many cards to play. The European Union is obviously the stronger of the two parties. So what they're trying to do is to play cards back into the game. And so, for example, if you saw they published their proposals on immigration, and there's a point system. You get a certain number of points for having a degree, some points for uh, speaking English. And if you get 70 points, you can come in and you can work. And what? Uh, and obviously, this is in a way opens the door to the possibility that maybe being a citizen of the European Union could give you some points. But that would be something that has to be negotiated. And obviously, if Britain were to give Europe that it would expect Europe to give Britain something else that it wants within these negotiations. And I think in the same way, the interpretation of how you implement the Northern Ireland Protocol is sort of, uh, you know, I think they see it as a potential. Uh, I mean, they insist uh, absolutely that it's not a bargaining chip, but I think they see it as something like that, a kind of a card to play, another area where they have to, uh, you know, they can be either helpful or unhelpful. And then the third function I think it could have is that if they were able to negotiate Negotiate in this joint committee to implement the protocol, uh, some kind of soft-touch customs regime for the Irish Sea, they might say, well, why can't we do that with Dover? And now the, uh, you know, the, the, the political declaration and indeed the protocol says this is not a precedent for any other kind of uh, you know, border crossing or any other arrangements. But nonetheless, if it's there, then you're kind of saying that it's possible. So, so, so I, I suppose what I'm saying is that the fact that they're speaking uh, in this, uh, you know, this doublespeak about the protocol doesn't mean they're planning to renege on it. But they're certainly, I think, open to instrumentalising it for their advantage in the negotiations. Can I just ask you a follow-up on that, Dennis? Because I read your, you had a very useful um, idiot's guide, and I'm the idiot in this situation, to, um, to sort of the, the key points of contention, which will be under debate over the next few weeks between the two sides. And the one you put at the top was actually about the nature of the agreement itself, an attempt to, to interpret the, the negotiate what the negotiations purpose is in profoundly different ways and you were saying that for the UK what they wanted to do first of all was a standalone free trade agreement we hear it again and again and again from the UK side and other stuff will follow or is separate but, but from the EU side what they want to do is an overarching deal you know presumably of great complexity where one agreement on one issue might be a quid pro quo for going a bit easier on another one it sounds to me that the latter is what's going to happen if there's leverage in one area looking you know looking to to get benefit out of that in another area yeah, because uh, in fact, you know, a lot of the same people are going to be negotiating everything. And so, uh, so I think that's right. But for the Europeans, they're talking about an overarching partnership. And, uh, you know, and, and I think one of the fundamental differences in a way between where we are now and where we were with Theresa May, was that Theresa May and the Europeans all spoke about the idea of this unique and special partnership. And what Boris Johnson is saying, actually, we don't want anything special. We want something bog standard, like you have with Canada or South Korea. And really what, you know, and they actually put it in a paragraph, and they say we want a relationship based on friendly cooperation between sovereign equals. And they say that whatever happens, they're not going to negotiate any arrangement where the UK doesn't have control of its own laws and political life. So what they're saying is no 
role for the European Court of Justice under any circumstances. And we accept that if we have a relationship with the Europeans like Canada does, that means that there will be friction in trade and there will be a cost to Britain in terms of its trading relationship with the European Union. But that's worth it as far as they're concerned if they can have complete regulatory freedom and uh, freedom also, like Naomi mentioned, uh, state aid. And you know, they, they want to use uh, state aid. They want to set up their own state aid regime because they have an ambitious programme for post-Brexit Britain and a new industrial policy which is based on science, education and technology and particularly new technology. And this, these are areas where, for example, British, uh, you know, the British would like to have their own data regime. They, they're going to abandon GDPR, the European data system, and they believe that they can attract tech companies from the US with, uh, by having a looser arrangement on data. They think, for example, in areas like artificial intelligence, they can also steal a march on the Europeans. And then in other areas like gene editing or whatever, that they again can have a laxer regime. And so, so what they're saying is, you know, rather as you have in other trade agreements, we can have uh, mutually reciprocal guarantees that we're not going to use lowering of employment rights or lowering of environmental standards to try to gain competitive advantage. But we're not going to be bound into EU rules to do this. It's going to be some kind of uh, acknowledgement of the of equivalent uh, regimes and that uh, you, you might have some kind of international arbitration, just like you have an arbitration system for any uh, treaty or any uh, free trade agreement between any two countries or two entities. But basically, Britain's leaving. It's not going to be part of the European regulatory orbit. Naomi, that, that sounds like a world away from I, but it seems to me uh, that Brussels' conception of the the talks, which are beginning next week, will be. I was talking to somebody earlier about this who expects rows and breakdowns in the early stage of the negotiations uh, on at least some of those points that Dennis has mentioned. There is that the expectation in Brussels that probably be off to a rocky start. Yeah, there's quite a wide um, sort of speculation that the British might try some kind of a stunt, you know, like a dramatic walk out or a blow up over something, to, you know, we're taking our papers and leaving, you know, the kind of something like that, that that might happen in the early stages. That's kind of widely expected. Um, and there's also, you can see that they're playing, that both sides are sort of seeking to use the schedule to their advantage. So the EU basically, because the two sides are so far apart at this point, the EU thought, you know, nothing's going to really happen. The British aren't going to come up with anything um, acceptable. Before we know it, it's going to be the summer break. Um, And then, you know, all of this will really sort of get down to intense negotiations in the autumn and they were sort of hoping that they would have the next few months now to focus on all the things that they want to do like sign off on the EU budget and do a load of housekeeping that's sort of been delayed by Brexit to be honest Um, but then the British I think realised that uh, so they came with their own ultimatum uh, where they said if we don't think that there's serious um, progress being made by June, then we're going to say so. And we're going to say that we don't think there's going to be a deal. And it's, you know, it's full steam ahead for that. Um, So I I think that's really interesting. And I think it's also worth noting that um, if you say that there's going to be some tariffs, you know, if it's going to be not totally tariff free, then what 
you're talking about is a deal that will take years and years and years to negotiate because there's so many different kinds of products that would need to be individually considered and there would be 27 member states with different views about which products should have what and that would just take I mean an enormous amount of time it's absolutely not possible by the end of the year. Dennis the uh, Tishik Leo Varadkar here has mentioned on a couple of occasions including I, I think the last time he was in Brussels or for not the last time he was in Brussels for a summit but the, the previous time in, in December that is his expectation of how this runs this year is that there it will possibly end up in some sort of bare bones agreement, trade agreement next uh, at the at the end of this year. Is that the expectation in London as well? Well, that's all they're looking for is a, a pretty bare bones agreement. I mean, they're, they're really looking for very little, uh, you know, beyond a, a sort of a standard uh, arrangement. But of course, what the Europeans say is, you know, you're too big and too near for us to give you uh, the kind of, uh, you know, market access we give Canada without having the safeguards of the level playing field. And, uh, and, and so, you know, because essentially we'd be giving uh, British businesses an unfair advantage over our own, and so, so I think, and I think this is also one of the reasons why uh, Boris Johnson's government feels a bit more confident going into the negotiations uh, than Theresa May's did, because what they they look at what they're asking for and they look at a no deal uh, outcome, and they say although a free trade agreement is certainly preferable and a no deal would be costly, the gap isn't quite as big as it is between uh, the kind of very close, frictionless arrangements that Theresa May was looking for uh, and a no-deal exit would have been. And so they're saying that actually, you know, we'll be able to to cope with it. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why they're saying, you know, we're going to see if there isn't progress by June, then we're going to just decide there's no point in wasting our time on this. We should spend our time just preparing for... Uh, you know, exit on the basis, as they put it, of the withdrawal agreement. But, so, but, but surely the, um, is, is the gap between current trade arrangements between the EU and the UK and what would exist if there were a no deal, that's the same as it was last year? Yeah, but what they're saying to business is, uh, you know, when business says, what should we do to prepare? And they say, well, look, we're leaving the customs union on the single market no matter what. So that's uh, So that means there will be uh, some kind of checks. That means there will be, uh, you know, some kind of disruption at the borders. So get ready for that, and you know, make your arrangements accordingly. Now, whether uh, it's zero tariff, zero quota access in, the, in terms of the trade, or whether it's you know, party tariff free, or you've got some tariffs or not, that's another question. But the fact is, the main decision has been made, which is that um, they're leaving the customs union and the single market, so there will be friction in terms of trade at the borders. And that's, uh, you, know, so the, you know, so no matter what kind of outcome these talks have, you're going to have that element of disruption. So get ready for that. Pat, could I ask you, I was wondering, is there an awareness, do you think, in Ireland at the moment of the consequences for Ireland of what Dennis is saying there? Um, I mean, friction is a nice way of saying it, but what we're actually talking about is, massive economic damage to the island of Ireland, particularly the north. Do you think that people are aware of this coming down the line or is there a sense that Brexit is kind of over, people are bored of it and now everyone's talking about the election? Yeah, I, I, I think 
that the conduct of the recent election is evidence enough that people have more or less forgotten about Brexit. I mean, what was it? Two or three percent of people thought that Brexit was the most important issue in uh, in the election. But had the election been held six months ago, uh, I think Brexit would have been one of the top issues in the election. Ironically, that might have been to the advantage of uh, of Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney, the rest of the Fine Gael ministers. But um, I, I don't think there is a public awareness, but I think if and when you know, when we head towards the end of the year and if there is a looming no deal, uh, which is, I guess, likely to be uh, the case, but also uh, in the absence of no deal, uh, a free trade agreement that still involves restrictions on commerce and impediments to commerce between uh, Ireland and the UK, then I think... uh, you know, I, I I think it will shoot pretty much uh, up the public consciousness again. And can I ask you also, Pat? Then what about the the point essentially, which was about the land bridge, which I think Naomi mentioned at the at the top of the podcast here, that this was an element which had gone into the the mandate for the EU, and obviously that's a key question for Ireland. It's not just our trading relationship with the UK, but it's free movement of goods across into that larger market in the EU. Oh, I think it's it's pretty clear that is likely to be used. In the negotiations by uh, by the British, I'm. I mean, there has been fairly intensive preparations by official agencies. They have continued. Uh, there was a stakeholder. There was a stakeholder conference or stakeholder forum even during the election uh, campaign, which Simon Coveney told us all about at great length uh, in the course of an election press conference. But it's just, it it has certainly fallen out of uh, of public consciousness of that. But I think if you're a business, you know, exporting to the UK, you are still acutely conscious of it, yeah. On, on that subject, I think actually the language might just be okay because road haulage is one of the few areas alongside uh, financial services where, uh, where Britain is actually looking for something from the European Union. It wants uh, British road hauliers to be able to operate freely in Europe just as they do now, rather in the same way as they want the financial services industry to be able to operate there. And so I think that probably that's uh, you know, a quo for the for the quid when it comes to um, to uh, doing some sort of a deal on the land bridge. So I think that's it's probably going to be in their interest to do something on that. Although, I mean, it's it's worth thinking about how that would work in practice. So, if there is some kind of a deal that allows Irish trucks to get through Britain smoothly to and from, um, partly what that would involve is them taking priority over British trucks because the queues would be full of British hauliers. Um, and I don't know how the truckers would feel like that <laughs> mm. or, or, or would think about that. That's one of, one of many things. Dennis, I want to turn to the subject of fish. Uh, it is Friday. Yes. It is Friday after all, um, and, and it's Lent. I, I, and it is Lent. Um, I, I, I was taken by. I could almost hear the strains of "Land of Hope and Glory" behind Michael Gove as he waxed lyrical about uh, Britain taking back its sovereign waters and you know full control over them and and so on and so forth. We, as an independent sovereign state, regard control of our own resources as something which we cannot barter away. Of course, we want to cooperate in the management of stocks with our neighbours, but the approach that we will take will be similar to that of other sovereign states um, or uh, sovereign regimes like Norway, Iceland uh, and the Faroes. And as an independent coastal state, we will regulate access to our own waters on our terms. Is fish purely symbolic? I mean, it's clearly not as economically important to the UK as financial services, for example. Or is there is, is there a serious political internal issue for the UK with, with regard to yeah. fishing rights? 
Yes, fish is a hugely uh, symbolic element of the whole Brexit thing because uh, one of the real bones of contention uh, about joining the European Union or the common market in the first place was the loss of control of Britain's fishing waters. And so one of the things, what they're saying basically is that, uh, you know, uh, Britain will become, uh, will regain control uh, under the uh, international law of the sea It'll regain control of its fishing waters. And then what they're saying is every year we'll sit down with you rather as the Europeans do with Norway or Iceland. And we'll agree on the basis of science and various other things exactly how uh, much fish uh, your uh, boats can fish in British waters. And we'll do that once every year and that's it, but that Britain would be in total control. Now, what the Europeans want is uh, much more structured, much more uh, dependable, multi-annual kind of a system where, uh, you know, where essentially that they would maintain the kind of access to British waters they currently have. And that's, you know, fishing is something that's important not just to Britain and also politically sensitive, but also to France and to Spain. And uh, so this is something which, uh, it's, you know, it was always going to be one of the more difficult ones. And it is, as you say, it's, a, it's an unusual thing because fishing uh, fisheries account for something like 1% of the uh, British economy, whereas financial services are a very big part. And yet, uh, you know, the government and Mrs May's government as well have really been prepared to uh, let financial services sink, and swim, sink or swim, more or less, while the fishermen are propped up in their boats. Naomi, we've we've talked a fair bit about the internal politics of the UK and talked a lot about it over the last 12 months, but the internal politics of the EU don't remain static either. And obviously, there's a complete change at the top with the Commission and so on. Uh, there are changing political dynamics in, in, in Germany in particular, I think it's fair to say. Is there any change in the overall EU posture, do you think, as we move into this phase? Um. I don't really think so. I don't think that the individual moving parts, um, because because it's 27 and because this process was already set in motion and has been sort of this very long running series of negotiations for so long, I, I don't think that coming in and going of individual um, leaders will affect it enormously um, because it, it is such a kind of a jointly negotiated endeavour, this mandate and so on. Um, although there are interesting questions um, in terms of what the the, the challenges facing the EU, um, I mean, they there wasn't a successful agreement on the EU budget um, because of disagreements. Essentially, um, there are four countries that want the EU to be cheaper for them, and they were sort of successful in preventing an agreement. I guess um, there's also questions like just today. There, it, there, the agreement between Turkey and the EU essentially to stop um, refugees and asylum seekers and migrants coming in through the border with Turkey uh, threatens to, be, to break down. Um, Turkish media seem to be reporting large numbers of people going towards the border to try and get into the EU, which, which can kind of actually cause such a thing to happen because it essentially communicates that the border is in question. Um, so there's, on top of everything else, there's the coronavirus as well, which the EU has been, I think, struggling to coordinate. It's a difficult one to, for them to, to grapple with sort of in a, in a joined up 27 member coordinated fashion because health policy is a national competence and so are borders. So if you want to stop, 
um, introduce any kind of checks, for example, that's entirely up to to, to nation states. Um, so it's it doesn't exactly fit easily or neatly into the competences of, of the EU institutions and what they've set up to deal with. Um, so there's a number of challenges, um, and like you say, there's there's moving parts politically. Could I just say, sorry, I, uh, Naomi, I, that litany of woe that you're uh, reciting is music to British <laughs> ears because they actually seize on everything like this. And they actually believe, like one of the reasons they feel kind of confident is, you know, Boris Johnson has an 80-seat majority. He doesn't have to face the voters again until 2025. And uh, so they look across the channel and they see coronavirus. They see, uh, you know, uh, political turmoil in uh, Germany and Italy, wherever else it is, and all these other things Ireland. you're mentioning. And in Ireland as well. And they just think actually, you know, if there's going to be a cost on both sides to no deal, the uh, politicians in Europe will pay the price politically sooner than the British will. But what you seem to be saying, Naomi, is that actually, although Europe is dealing with all these crises, and they're difficult, that actually, it's not associating them in any sense with Brexit. No, not not at all. And I mean, in terms of public perception, the blame for Brexit and any downside of Brexit, uh, lies very squarely with the people who voted for it and the government that pursued a very hard version of it. Um, it's not. It's really not going to um, to land on on EU leaders. I, I highly doubt that. I mean, if you look at the statistics, the entire um, the the survey data shows that the entire Brexit process has been like a. A, a large scale morality play that's kind of demonstrated to the citizens of Europe what the EU is and what it's for and what the benefits of it is. And actually sort of desire to, uh, for a Nexit or a Frexit, have reduced since the Brexit negotiations have gone on. There hasn't been a sort of a domino effect of demands to leave as the um, the Brexit campaigners believed there would be. Um, so, yeah, I really, um, there are challenges, yes, but it, how they relate to Brexit is essentially that the EU leaders want to get Brexit done and out of the way so that they can focus on things like this. The new EU Commission has lots of geopolitical ambitions that it's stated, including, you know, tackling uh, cr- climate change and making EU uh, the EU like a leader in tech and, and so on. And um, it it how how it's big question that it wants to get on with is how to actually do that and how to get agreement between uh, 27 quite quite different member states. Okay, Pat, you wanted to come in. Well, now. just to say that I, I think that Boris Johnson's big majority that Dennis um, uh, refers to there also gives him the possibility of, a, of, of, of agreeing any sort of a deal. So he can go either way. Whatever deal hmm. he agrees. And this was Theresa May's big difficulty that she couldn't get what she agreed through Parliament. He can get any agreement through Parliament as he has done with the withdrawal agreement, which by any standards was a massive retreat from where the British position previously had been vis-a-vis Northern Ireland, at least. So if, uh, if, if Boris ends up surrendering on lots of things in the negotiations, I'm not suggesting that that is what will happen. But he has that option open to him in a way that Theresa May didn't. My mind boggles at the prospect of yeah. Boris Johnson rubbing his hands at the at the effect of coronavirus across Europe. But I, yeah, but can oh. I just for a second just go back to what Pat is saying? I think it's worth remembering, though, why did Boris Johnson make that compromise in Northern Ireland? It was so that he could have, for the rest of Britain, this much more divergent uh, relationship mm. with the EU. So that actually, uh, you know, the, 
the precedent of the compromise on the withdrawal agreement regarding Northern Ireland, it doesn't necessarily point in the direction of a willingness uh, to compromise, even if he can later on with regard to uh, the economic relationship. I think it's ideological. I think it's really that, uh, you know, I think that uh, Boris Johnson and the people around him, they believe that the point of Brexit is to get away from European rules. And they also believe that the only economic case for Brexit is actually to break free and to use that freedom to diverge. Just one last thought from from both of you. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with coronavirus, but events like this can emerge over the course of lengthy negotiations of this sort. And economic clouds have been looming for a while across, you know, across global economies. And, you know, China isn't in great shape as a result of what's happened over the last few weeks. If there is serious new economic pressures, the recession, which some people have been predicting for a couple of years, does that affect the way in which politics plays out in these negotiations? I'd say in Britain, there are two things that can affect it and can suddenly make uh, Boris Johnson's majority not look quite as impressive. One is that uh, in a few weeks' time, you will have a leader of the Labour Party, probably going to be Keir Starmer. Some people think he's a bit boring, but the fact is that he's a pretty professional operator and suddenly you'll have uh, a real opposition uh, across the aisle able to hold Boris Johnson to account, including forensically on these negotiations with regard to the European Union. And I think that's one thing that's going to change his luck. And then the other thing is exactly what you're describing, bits of misfortune, the handling of the floods here in the last couple of weeks, his handling of the coronavirus uh, has drawn a lot of criticism, including from some of the the elements of the press that are normally friendly to Boris and to the Conservative Party. And so things, you know, things can go wrong for politicians. And that could affect the uh, you know, the negotiations. And it could affect maybe even those fundamental calculations that Boris Johnson has about Brexit. The only thing that I, the only reason I think it might not work out that way is because the main thing that Boris Johnson seems to want to do is to fulfill what he said in his manifesto. The manifesto was quite small. There are many promises in it. But he wants to be able to go back to people and say, look, these are the things I said I'd do. 20,000 policemen, 50,000 nurses, uh, get Brexit done. This is what I'm going to do. And I've done it. And he thinks that then that gives him a chance to, uh, you know, for longer political survival. So, I th- you know, so, so things can, can blow him off course. But I think on the fundamental direction of Boris Johnson's Brexit, I don't think things are going to change. Naomi? Um, I think um, economic pressures have very little ability to affect um, the EU's negotiating ap- approach. Because, like I say, it's just 27 member states um, and it's so difficult for changes to be to be introduced in that way. But the, the way that I think um, it's being seen from the EU is that um, the Frost, d- the speech by David Frost, the chief UK negotiator in Brussels, made references to, to things like costs and trade-offs. And this new language accepts that there's going to be an economic price in the UK for the divergence and the um, freedom that they want. And that is a kind of the 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 acceptance of that in the at the government level is being received with a kind of um, a grim attitude in in the EU because what they think that means is there's going to there's going to be a poorer Britain on the edge of Europe and that's bad for the general uh, EU economic zone um, and it's also bad inter- because an unhappy poor British populace. Um, is is just bad for everybody, um, and also there's questions about what will it mean for Britain as well once those economic facts hit home 
and people are less wealthy than they used to be. And of course, all those bad things are bad for Ireland as well. Pat, can you just give us a last thought on this? We'll just say that if those economic pressures, I think what they will do both in Ireland and across Europe, if they emerge, and I suppose the beginning of them is already underway. And even in the even the best possible current outcome of Brexit, there, ha- there is an economic cost. And this is one of the things that the government has not perhaps communicated here quite as clearly as it might have, that even the best possible Brexit has a pretty severe economic impact here. But I think what that is likely to do, both here and across Europe, is to concentrate national leaders' minds more on their domestic politics rather than on European politics. And I think that is likely to impel them towards a deal and make a no deal less likely uh, than it might otherwise be. Right, we shall leave it there. But before we finish, just to mention again that if you have been following this podcast and if you'd like more of our quality journalism, please do go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for a digital subscription at the eye-wateringly low introductory price of one euro for the first month. And that'll give you unlimited access to all our journalism, including the combined wisdom of Pat and Dennis and Naomi, to whom thanks are due for joining us today. Thanks also to Suzanne Brennan for producing, JJ Vernon on the desk. And remember that you can find us on all the usual platforms and at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com or you can find most of us on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 